Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 33 of my podcast, I Stand Strong. I, as always, am Teddy, coming at you from my bear cave in the concrete jungle of the beautiful Midwest. Um, even if it is still a little bit cold, I mean, we're, we're, we're facing warmer temperatures here lately. Um, but yeah, so uh, today I'm actually going to kind of go back to something I briefly talked about my first episode where I talked about my love of horror movies. I am going to talk about the horror franchise of Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, you know, it's it's one of the standouts to me. I think it's of the, the big 80s horror franchises. To me, it's the best one. Um, you know, even, you know, warts and all, I've, I've always loved the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. I mean, even the bad ones are at least fun in some way, shape, or form. Um, thanks to Robert England and just knowing how to ham it up and make it at least fun. Um, but yeah, I mean, th- this franchise, you know, it's it's been a standout to me since the first time I saw it peeking through the balcony, you know, the, through the balcony, through the the posts of you know the stairs while my sisters were watching it at a sleepover. Um, you know, I wasn't supposed to be watching it, but I was, and it scared the living piss out of me. And I loved that feeling. And so it's always kind of stuck with me. And, you know, and then as I saw the later ones, it, you know, it of course evolves and I've, I've loved, I love the later ones too. Um, I mean, hell, I have a documentary on Blu-ray called Never Sleep Again, which breaks down every movie they did in the franchise, minus the remake. Um, And, you know, it gets a lot of the original cast back and whatnot to talk about these movies. And I've watched that thing, like, at least ten times, and every time it's it's entertaining just to hear about this franchise. Um, So I'm kind of hoping to talk through this franchise and explain to me, explain to you why why I think it's the best of the eighties horror franchises. Um, so yeah, we'll start with 1984. Um, I was three years old. Of course I was probably like six or seven when I saw this. Cause we were already in Vancouver when my sisters were watching it. So I don't know how long it had been out, but they, they had rented it from a rental store, but uh, 1984 West Craven writes and directs the original nightmare on Elm street. Um, you know, a, a story of a group of friends being stalked by a burned faced killer with a glove of not like with a knife glove, essentially, you know, he has a glove that has four, four blades on it for his fingers. Um, you know, and it, it, it could have been a very different movie. Um, you know, like originally, uh, Robert England wasn't going to be playing Freddy. It was supposed to be David Warner, which I like David Warner as an actor, but I feel like that would have been a totally different film. Um, but yeah, I mean, Freddy, Freddy is like the icon of horror to me, probably because even in the original one before it went, you know, a little, you know, a little campy, I guess you could say a little more spoofy. You know, Freddie started dropping the one-liners and everything. He always had this kind of little bit of a sadistic humor to the way he was stalking him. I mean, like when 
he's stalking uh, Tina in her dream and his, you know, he's cuts his own fingers off and it squirts green blood or he, you know, he's rolling around with her and she grabs his face and it pulls his face off and his skeleton below it or whatever. You know, there's always kind of this little bit of just a hint of humor to it that Robert England brings to me. He's the one who epitomizes that kind of stuff. Um, but I mean, th- this movie was, was originally created because Wes Craven read an article about a boy who I want to say it was in the Philippines was saying, you know, like he, he didn't sleep for like four, four or five straight days or something like that. And his parents were fighting him to go to sleep. And he's like, no, you don't understand if I feel like if I go to sleep, I'm going to die. And I want to say they had to sedate him and he went to sleep and he died in his sleep. Um, and later they found like he had in his nightstand, he had a coffee maker and he had caffeine pills. So like he had been secretly taking all this caffeine and everything to keep himself awake. Um, and somehow that, you know, that triggered Wes Craven to write this story. Um, and what a great story it is. I mean, it, for, for as simplistic as the, the premise is, I mean, is there something, is there anything more effective than the idea of not even being safe in your sleep? I mean, that's when you're at your most vulnerable, you know, you can't do anything. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, you know, the idea of a, a killer tracking you when you're at your most vulnerable. I mean, that's, that's scary on top of the fact that like just Freddy Krueger himself is scary. I mean, um, you know, but then you also have, you know, the, you know, your main group of people led mostly by, um, Heather Langenkamp as Nancy Thompson and, uh, a very young Johnny Depp in his first ever movie role as Glenn, her boyfriend, who's supposed to be a jock, even though he really doesn't have the typical jock physique, I guess. Um, but no, it's, you know, it's, you know, it's just them kind of dealing with this when nobody really believes them, you know, their parents think they're crazy that they're just, you know, no, you're just, it's just, they're just bad dreams or whatever, you know, and it's, but then it kind of does become a story of the sins of the parents because yeah, as you go along and, you know, Nancy gets further down the rabbit hole of, you know, trying to figure out what is going on with this situation. She finds out that her, you know, she eventually gets her mom to admit that Fred Cougar was this person who existed and he was a child killer is all they say in the movie but it's to me it was always i always read it as no he was a child molester he just also killed the children too but and i think if i remember right from that documentary never sleep again they do kind of tackle the fact that he was very much a in the original version it's very clear he was a child molester um, but they toned it back to uh, to keep the the rating down to an R. Um, but I mean, along the way, you've got some really great set pieces, especially when you get into the you know the the dream logic sequences of you know um, 
you know, Tina having the, the dream and, you know, the dream that ends up being where she dies, you know, where she, she sees him walking down the alley and his arms are like extend out to his sides though. He's scraping both walls at the same time, even though it's probably like a six or seven foot alley easily uh, wide. So it's like his arms are abnormally long, which it's impressive how they pulled that off. Cause I, you know, it really kind of comes off to me that Wes Craven was very good at coming up with great ideas for ways to do things ahead, you know, before it was really, really common knowledge with some of the special effects stuff. Um, but then, you know, yeah, it all leads to, you know, Tina thrashing around in bed and Rod wakes up next to her and, he pulls the sheets back because she's fighting with someone, but there's no one there. And then in the dream, you see Freddy, like, you know, slash. And then it shows what Rod's seen and just four blades, four blade marks just appear on her stomach. And she starts gushing blood. And the next thing you see, she's getting dragged up a wall and onto the ceiling, just screaming bloody murder and spouting blood everywhere. And then she falls. And in the original version, which I'd really like to see at some point in time, I'd love somebody to re-edit the movie and get the footage back of the original version of the ending of that sequence. Because I guess there was a point where she hits the mattress and so much blood would, had built up on that mattress that it, sp- it just like splatters everywhere. But they had to cut it back once again for the MPAA because they were raising a heck, heck about... Oh, they're pitching a fit because of how much blood was in the scene. Um, and that, you know, but that event is really in many ways, like kind of the, the catalyst to start a majority of the storyline because, you know, yeah, you do have the little subtle things of, you know, the, the, the movie opens with, you see this, you know, like, kind of anonymous set of hands sharpening blades and making the glove or whatever. And then you see Tina wake up and she's got the three slashes along her, uh, her nightgown. But then you get these little subtle references as they're all going into school that she's not the only one who's having dreams about this guy. And then her death though, is kind of the thing that pushes it. Even though Rod gets blamed for it, which, you know, leads to him getting arrested and, Another really great little set piece of him getting hung by the the sheets of his bed in the jail cell, which was another really cool thing, like how they filmed the sheets wrapping around his neck and dragging him up and everything. Um, You know, and you've got, you know, the, you know, her father who, you know, who is the cop who just believes, oh, no, it has to be Rod was the killer because he was found with the switchblade even though by modern standards they know that wasn't the thing that killed it killed her in no time because they could do a check on it and find there was no DNA on it or whatever. But that's beside the point. Um, you know, it's, it's really the, uh, a movie that I think could hold up to multiple generations. Um, I mean, like I said, Robert England puts out, a great performance as this creepy burn face guy, which you really don't actually in that movie. You don't ever get too many like really, really good looks at him. He's always in enough shadow that, you know, possibly because the makeup effects might not have been, 
to where they could have been. Maybe it was just because he thought it looked better as long as you kept him somewhat in shade. You never really got a full glimpse of him. Um, you know, and then you get into stuff like the stuff that uh, Wes Craven put in there just to make people uncomfortable, like the the soundtrack. You know, I, I don't I didn't look up who did the soundtrack to the movie, but like he admits like he was using keys that shouldn't be used close together because it was like with these certain jumps and keys or whatever on the, the instrumentation, it would make the person like audibly uncomfortable. But then you have like the sweat, the sweater that Freddie wears himself is designed to be visually uncomfortable. Um, you know, Wes Craven talks about in that documentary about how it was, it was specifically designed with the red and green, those that specific red and green next to each other because those two next to each other for some reason is uncomfortable on the eyes, but it's not something you really recognize unless you know that's, that's something. I mean, so it's, it's a bunch of really cool little miniature pieces that just add up to this great, you know, this greater, greater whole kind of thing. Um, you know, and then, you know, like, oh man, like I, I could go on, I could probably just do a full podcast just on the first movie if I wanted to, because it's just, I mean, I'd rant a lot, but that's beside the point. I mean, like, you know, the, the sequence with, with Nancy in class and she's, she falls asleep in class. And when she falls asleep, the guy's reading, I can't remember what he, I think it's, it's Shakespeare, which, um, a little side note, the great Lynn Shea plays the teacher in that scene, who is actually the sister of Robert Shea, who is the like the owner of or the founder of uh, Dimension or is it Dimension? New Line. New Line Cinema. Um, but yeah. And but anyway, so, the, you know, she falls asleep. And after she falls asleep, the guy reading this poem is suddenly doing like I think they called it stage whisper. So he's he's whispering but he's talking loud enough it projects a little bit and it just makes it creepy and then you hear nancy's name said by some you know said off screen and she looks over and there's tina in a body clear body bag which i really feel bad for the actress because that had to have been just like you know your body does not want to be in a body bag i'm sure and it's mostly zipped up and you know i don't know it's like that that whole sequence is just like it just, it's nerve wracking, yet at the same time, it's amazing to watch over and over again to me. Um, so yeah, I mean it, and then, you know, but it all leads up to, you know, Nancy being the sole survivor after uh, Glenn gets pulled into his own bed and way more blood than is possibly contained in the human body comes spurting out. But that's beside the point. We're talking about a horror movie. You can suspend your disbelief on some things. But, um, you know, she's the last one standing and she's done this research and she decides she's going to take the fight to Freddy. <clears throat> and she starts booby trapping her house and she basically tells her father to wake her up in so much time, you know, to, you know, it, at, at, at the certain point in time, come kick down the door or whatever, and she'll have the killer. Um, 
And it leads to, you know, her going to the dreams and actually pulling Freddy out of the dream, out of the nightmare into reality, which, you know, I could argue that that, that, that point it gets a little bit hokey, but at the same time, like I'm okay with it. Um, and you know, he chases around the house and she's detonating traps on him and whatnot. And then she finally locks him in the, you know, locks him in the basement, sets him on fire And I want to say that's actually in the record books as being like the longest full body burn a stuntman has ever done was the sequence where they light Freddy on fire in that basement. And she runs to the front door, gets her, you know, her father comes to the door when she, you know, knocks the door down as she comes back upstairs and they, you know, she says she's, she has Fred Krueger tapped in the basement. He's dead though. And they turn around, there's the footprints going up the stairs and they get up to, they follow the footprints up to her mother's room who she had passed out drunk because like, as the movie goes, she gets further and further down the alcoholic blood, you know, alcoholic path line. And they go in there and he's, you know, like basically melting into the bed with her. I mean, it's, like I said, it's a little weird. Um, but it still works to me and you know, thus, you know, being told that basically was that the way, you know, was Freddie dead? Um, you know, did she kill him? And then, you know, she, her father leaves the room and she's laying there or she's standing there and she closes the door but keeps her back to the bed and you can see like this great sequence of like Freddie rising out of the bed. Like this, the, like, I don't know what they used for it, but like he comes up out of the bed and like tears the sheets open, but he's smoking as if he just got put out or whatever. And all she basically says is, I don't believe in you because as long as I, if I fear you, I give you power and he charges her and just kind of melts away, you know, like Pat, like, kind of like passes through her like as he dissipates and then we flash to a brilliant sunny morning and her friends are all out in the car you know calling her because it's time to go to school and her mom sees her to the door and she she seems a little disoriented for a second but accepts it and then she goes and gets in the car and like just before they drive away the top of the car comes up and it's Freddy's pattern and the car drives away on its own and her mom gets sucked through a window and you drive down that they drive the car drives down the street and as it drives down the street you see the little girls which becomes a very uh a very big part of the the nightmare on elm street lore you know the 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 little girls in white doing uh hopscotch or, or you know jump rope singing the the infamous Freddy Krueger rhyme, which is creepy as hell, heard sung by little girls. Um, well, any little kid, really. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's that that wraps up the first one, which was never intended to be anything more than that movie. Um, I think the original ending was going to be very specifically like it's all wrapped up. But Bob Shea saw the potential and what they could do with it, and he wanted the ending refilmed, so they did the whole ending with the hints that Freddy's still alive. And thus we come to Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, Freddy's Revenge. 
which growing up was one of my least favorite ones. I just didn't get it. Um, but as I've gotten older, like, I mean, I was pretty young when I watched Freddy too, and I just, I didn't get it. There was just something off about that movie to me. It was very off putting. Um, but as I got older, I realized I figured out what it was. It was like, I was too young to understand the very heavy, um, gay undertones of that movie. That movie was like, and I know there was a lot of, uh, argument about it. Um, Oh, by the way, it was directed by uh, Jack Shoulder. Um, Wes Craven is listed as a writer, but I want to say that's just because of like an earlier draft that he somewhat wrote for Fred, for Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2. But it was mainly written by David Ch- Chaskin, who was very open for a long time about saying, like, no, like, if people were reading gay undertones into this movie, it's... It's completely in their head. There's no, you know, homosexual, you know, no homosexual undertones to this movie. Um, but uh, was it maybe two or three years ago? They did a documentary that I cannot think of the name of that actually follows the actor uh, Mike Patton, Mark Patton. Um, who plays Jesse, the main character, and he was an openly gay actor at the time. Um, and like this, like just destroyed him because everybody put it on him. Like, oh, well, this movie must come off with the gay undertones because of because of him being gay. Like he did it. But they did a documentary where it's like him talking about like how that movie changed his career for the good and the bad. Um, and it actually has a point where he sits down with, uh, Chaskin and Chaskin basically admits like, no, he, he wrote that in there, but when originally he was afraid to admit he wrote it in there, but he had no idea the, the, the effect of not admitting it would come off on, you know, like would have on, uh, Mark Patton. But, um, anyways, uh, so the story is a new family moves into the house that Nancy lived in. Um, which like it's Jesse, the main character played by Mark Patton, his mother, father. And I want to say he has, I can't remember if he has a little sister or a little brother, but anyways, um, you know, they all move into this, into the house and he immediately starts having like weird, like dreams about Freddie. Um, but he doesn't fully understand like what's going on. Um, God, this, this movie is really hard to explain because it, it does get a little bit weird at points, but, um, you know, he, so he starts, you know, like he has, you know, I think the first dream he has is like the school, the infamous school bus one where, you know, he's on the school bus at the very beginning and they do, you know, they're, they're driving all of a sudden the bus starts going off road. The next thing you know, they're like high centered on just this like single large pillar of stone or whatever. And Freddie's glove comes out of a chick's stomach. If I remember right or something like that, it, it was weird. Um, but then of course, Jesse wakes up and then thus starts the movie of, you know, like basically, uh, the next dream he has is Freddie basically comes to him and says like, he needs him. Cause, Freddy's the brains and, you know, Jesse could be the body kind of thing. So 
I guess it's hinted that Freddy is like trying to like possess Jesse, but you know, it's, it's weird. Um, but then, you know, but you know, that's beside the point. I mean, you know, you've got, once again, you got the core group of friends. Um, I didn't write down the actor or the name of the character that plays the best friend to Jesse, but you know, he's the typical jock kind of thing where Jesse is kind of this very, you know, he's very kind of like nerd. He almost comes across mousy or nerdy. Um, but then he has a thing for his neighbor played by Kim Myers. And I forgot to write down the name of the character she plays. That's how much this movie is really like not stuck out to me as much as I like it for some of the aspects of it. Now, um, I need to revisit it more often now so I can, cause like for a while there, I just skipped number two when I was watching the movies. Um, but anyways, you know, yeah. So they like long story short, kind of it just like he, he goes through a series of like almost like waking dreams. One of which where he, he has the dream, but he wakes up and he's in a gay bar and the, the gym teacher from school is at this bar and like punishes him by taking him back to the school and making him, I think it's like run or do push-ups or something like that. And then it ends with the gym teacher being like strung up by, I want to say it's like shower heads come out and wrap him up and like strap him out. So like, you know, his arms are spread wide and then he gets like hit with a bunch of different styles of sports balls. Yeah. Not so subtle there. Is it, you know, man getting man that comes out of a gay bar getting pelted with balls. Um, and yeah, it was just this really, really like nonsensical to me at the time of when I first saw it. Um, and then, you know, it, it kind of concludes with, you know, Freddie coming out of, like, coming into the real world at this pool party and killing everybody. And Jesse runs away to, to I think it's supposed to be heavily implied that it was, like, basically the, the boiler room area that Freddie was, you know, killed the children at. And the, the girlfriend comes looking for him and, like, is the savior. So it's kind of in a way... The screen queen of this this movie is Jesse, where the girlfriend is almost like technically the the final girl. I mean, she's the final girl, but he's technically the final girl. I I, I really don't. But like, and then it 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 ends with a cliffhanger, basically saying Freddie's not gone. Blah 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 blah. But she saves she saves Jesse, and it's all all hunky dory. Um, yeah, I really need to go back and revisit too at some point in time and watch it and really. Really try to appreciate it. Maybe maybe I'll have more appreciation on it, you know, in newer watchings. Um, but now we get to probably my second favorite in the entire franchise, which is Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3, The Dream Warriors, directed by Chuck Russell from 1987. Um, oh, by the way, Elm Street 2 was 85, like a year, like I think it was like a little, 
little under a year after the original one came out, two had come out. So it was kind of rushed as well. But anyways, um, so 87, we have part three, which sees the return of Nancy, once again played by Heather Langenkamp, but it centers on this group of troubled youth that are in a like a psychiatric ward, essentially. And they've all got their own kind of hang-ups, I guess you could say. Um, but it's heavily implied that all of them are children of Elm Street. So like, probably their parents were part of the group of people that burned Fred Krueger. Um, and Nancy is now, you know, full grown. She's, uh, she's a doctor. She comes in as, I, I think she's more of like a therapist of some kind, but she comes in to try to help these kids. And she quickly recognizes the symptoms. Cause like her first scene there, uh, Patricia Arquette putting in an amazing performance as Kristen, uh, really kind of the main character of this one, um, is being checked in after having uh, a suicidal episode, as they called it. But, you know, she has a dream and Freddie's hands come out of like the nozzles of her bath or her bathroom sink, which another kind of iconic thing. A lot of people have seen that even if they don't know the movie it comes out of. And like slashes her wrist, but then her mom comes in and she's standing there with a razor blade in one hand and her wrist bleeding. So it looks like she tried to commit suicide. So she's being checked into this hospital. Um, and then there's a very young, uh, a fairly young Larry Lawrence Fishburne, then going by Larry Fishburne, um, who plays an orderly. Um, not a whole lot of big names in this one that I can think of. Patricia Arquette's really the, the kind of driving, driving one by nowadays standards. But even then she, uh, but when that movie came out, she wasn't really well known. And if there's one downside to that documentary, it's the fact that I really wish they could have got Patricia Arquette to come back to do interviews about nightmare on Elm street part three. Um, I think she's the only major character that doesn't come back, uh, in that documentary to, do interviews, which kind of, which is kind of sad in a way, but, um, but anyways, yeah. And it, so through with, with Nancy's guidance, these kids kind of find the power within, I guess you could say. And it's, it's a bit hokey, you know, you get the, the whole thing of like, everybody has their, their abilities in the dream. So like, you know, uh, Patricia Arquette, like it's really hinted like that her, her true dream power is like, she's always had the ability to pull people to her dreams. But aside from that, like she can do gymnastics where there's, uh, you know, there's this kid Kincaid who's kind of a tough case and he becomes like, kind of like a strong man kind of thing, like really tough character. You've got a kid in a wheelchair who, you know, basically tried to commit suicide after having a dream about Freddy, but he, uh, all he managed to do was break his back and basically put himself in a wheelchair permanently. Um, who like, he's really into D and D or, a I can't remember what they call it in that, in the movie, but it's, it's basically D and D and he becomes like the wizard master. And then there's a former drug addict that, or well, I guess I don't like saying former drug addict because, once you're an addict, you're always an addict. So I guess she's she's a recovered at recovered addict, um, 
but she becomes, and it kind of does seem cheesy now, but she becomes this like just punk looking character with two switchblades. And, but anyways, um, yeah. And it, it's, this is the, this is kind of the, the entry to the Freddy that a lot of people really, really recognize now where he, be, he starts getting the one liners. Um, he starts being a little more comical about stuff, but it's still got some really good, you know, some really great aspects to it. On top of the fact, like, I just really feel like this one also has, like, as far as the ensemble cast go, it has some really good performances from, like, I think most of the kids are, you know, most of these, these actors that play this group of kids really put in good performances. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, you know, and with Heather's or with Nancy's help, they kind of decide to fight back against Freddy after one of them, you know, they do like this research with, or uh, they do a, oh God, an experiment with this medication hypnosil or whatever um, that will, should allow them to control their dreams or whatever. And they don't think it works. And Joey, who is mute, I think they give a brief explanation. It's like he, he, you know, he used to be on the debate team, but he stopped speaking after the nightmares became really bad or whatever. But he has a thing for like this this nurse that's in this the hospital. And they decide to take five after trying this first experiment, and they don't think it works. And. Joey follows the nurse because she's like flagging him down. And next thing you know, he's, you know, he's laying on a bed and she's topless. So you get your obligatory tit shot, which I remember as a teenager watching that sequence several times because the, the nurse had a very nice body. Um, but anyways, uh, which then becomes like, she spits tongues and ties him to the bed with the tongues and, you know, then she becomes Freddy standing there, which leads to the great one-liner. What's the matter, Joey? Tongue-tied. So, like I said, it, it it this is the start of the the campy Freddy. But God, I love this movie. Um, you know, you get John Saxon returning as Heather's or keep saying Heather's Nancy's father. Um. And, you know, he, you know, cause they need to go to him to find out what was done with Freddie's remains. Cause the, another doctor that works alongside Nancy keeps seeing this nun on the grounds. And one, at one point in time, he gets a conversation with her and she basically tells him he need his, you know, his body needs to be buried and consecrated and hollowed ground or whatever to put his spirit to rest or whatever. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, man you, you try to just talk about them and it, they sound kind of hokey but man they're not so hokey when you're watching them. god i love these movies um oh great a, a nice little siren going down the street right in the middle of me recording um but yeah you you've got but then uh you know you also get the to me one of the best deaths in the nightmare on elm street franchise where there's a girl that, you know, she has dreams of being a movie or television star. And so she's staying up late one night and Lawrence Fishburne checks in on her, tells her it's time to go to bed. And she's like, oh, come on, just give me like another hour or whatever. 
she's having problems sleep you know she she doesn't want to go to sleep yet and she picks up a cigarette butt out of the ashtray which is really gross lights it and then you know puts it out on her hand which i want to say that was one they make they make reference to the fact that she she was known for doing that she, like she had a bunch of scars on her hands already for doing that before um but anyway so uh she's watching I don't even remember the name of the TV, the the night the the late night host, but she's watching something and he's interviewing Zsa Zsa Gabor and she doesn't realize it, but she dozes off, and the host of the TV show becomes Freddie and then goes all scrambly and she gets right up next to the TV, which is like probably four or five feet in the air, you know, hung from a wall and. Freddy's head comes out of the top of the TV complete with rabbit ears and then arms come out of the side of the TV and pick her up and he tells her it's her big break in television welcome to prime time bitch and slams her head into the TV Lawrence Fishburne walks in she's hanging from the TV like her head is embedded in this TV and she's hanging there and they still ruled a suicide that cracks me up to this is like I want to know how they thought she got up that high to get her head into a TV. But anyways, it's it is a great moment. It's really funny. Um yeah, I know a lot of people give it a lot of shit when Freddy became funny because like is it really horror then? But I don't know, like Freddy Krueger's iconic. I mean, he's great. It, were the movies really scary after the first one? Probably not, but they're still some of the best. Um, but yeah, you know. But then it, you know, it leads to, like I said, since uh, Joey's caught by Freddy, they decide they're going to go in and basically rescue him. But they have to all go, you know, go in together, basically. So they the the rest of the group, since Kristen's been like locked in the quiet room, they call it basically a padded room. Um, and very doped up. They put like the other ones get Nancy to come back. Cause she, after Joey got, went into a coma, she gets relieved from the, the, uh, the hospital or whatever. And they do their hypnosil thing again to try to join, you know, join Kristen. So she doesn't have to face Freddie alone or whatever. And it leads to just them kind of, you know, Joey finds his voice in the dreams. And, you know, they they have a somewhat fight with Freddy. At the same time, though, you have the, you know, the other doctor that works with Nancy and her father, you know, going and getting the, the bones of Freddy and burying them and, you know, performing a sort of last rites on them and... When that starts happening, you get the, you know, the, um, like Fred, they do this really cool stuff where like where suddenly Freddie's got a cross in his, on his forehead. That's just glowing light in the dream. And then as they splash holy water on him, you know, it like where he gets splashed, it becomes, it, like I said, it sounds stupid, but it's so, it's, it's great to me. Um. You also get kind of a really great Ray Harryhausen kind of moment where Freddy's bones in re- in the real world resurrect themselves and start fighting with John Saxon and the do- the the doctor. And it is just 
ridiculous but awesome. Um, but yeah, but in in the in the struck you know, but in the skirmish with Freddy, Nancy dies, and it so you kind of get a a sad ending in a way, but then is it a sad ending because Freddy's gone and you know these kids are free of their nightmares or whatever. But then you get a little little stinger of, you know, uh, at the beginning of the movie, Kristen was making this popsicle house and ends up being like basically Freddy's house or Nancy's house. But they kind of always refer to it as Freddy's house. But anyways, um, and the doctor has it sitting on his like nightstand. And as he's sleeping, a light comes on in the house. Dun, dun, dun. And that leads us to another another favorite of mine, which even though it could have been so much of a better movie if it wasn't as edited and cut for, you know, they didn't cut the budget on it so often uh, or so much. Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master. Uh, this one was directed by Rennie Harlan, who I really like some of really Rennie Harlan's films. I know he's not for everyone. He's had some stinkers. But man, I really only you know, give me the long kiss goodnight. I love that movie. Or this one is another great one. Um you can skip Cutthroat Island though. You're not missing anything with that one. Uh but anyways, yeah, so directed by Rennie Harlan. Um it brings back Kristen, Kincaid, and Joey. Uh, although Kristen is now played by an actress named Tuesday night, who also did a badass song for the soundtrack, like kind of like the, like over the main credits or the, the main intro of the movie, they have this song playing called nightmare. And that's actually the actress that plays, uh, Kristen in this film. Um, but they're now, you know, back in, I guess the reg, the, the normal world kind of thing. Uh, and they've got a core group. Well, Kristen is now dating. Oh God. I can't remember his name. Rick is the name and Rick's sister. Alice is kind of the, this mousy character. And, but Kristen keeps having dreams, even though Freddie's not alive, like the boiler, you know, they, they make the reference that, you know, she keeps having the dreams about the house and, uh, going in, but nothing's going on. And because she gets freaked, she pulls Joey and Kincaid into her dreams and they're getting kind of pissy with her because she's pulling them into their dreams, into her dreams. And they just want to leave well enough alone. Um, however, even though Freddie's not there, things that happen in the dream can still have consequences in real life. So like in the original dream, like uh, Kincaid's dog jumps through uh, jumps out of the boiler and bites Kristen's arm. So when she wakes up, she's got a bite mark on her arm or whatever. Um, but then when they go to schools, when they st- you know you start getting introduced to uh, the other characters uh, from the for the movie, which like I said, Alice, who is kind of the main character, like becomes the main character of this one. Um, her brother Rick. Uh, there's kind of the guy that Alice has like these daydreams throughout the movie and she kind of has a thing for, you know, this, this guy, uh, Dan, who I always found it funny that 
he, his name is Dan and his real life, his name is Dan. So it's a whole Tony Danza always playing characters named Tony kind of thing. And in fact, I want to say in the documentary, he actually makes fun of the fact that like maybe they thought he didn't couldn't remember another name. Um, but anyways, you know, in this one, yeah, you have, you know, Kristen's afraid, you know, that Freddie's not really gone. Everybody, you know, like nobody else really knows about the whole Freddy Krueger thing except for her, Kincaid, and Joey. And then one night, Kincaid falls asleep and he wakes up in the scrapyard that they had the, in the third one, they went to find the, the bones of Freddie in. But it's not just a yard anymore. It's like now the whole world is this this scrapyard kind of thing. And he finds his dog, which then pees fire, but opens up this like hole in the ground, which like basically re- resurrects Freddy with this really cool sequence where you start out seeing the bones, but then the bones start kind of like clacking to get like locking together, and then slowly like the nervous systems like flesh starts coming up around the bones and the nervous system and all that kind of stuff to the point that then finally freddy's back and he proceeds to kill kincaid you know basically starting you know starting his legacy all over again so to speak um and then he gets joey in another really great death to me where he, you know, Joey is like laying on his bed and there's this like bikini model and a poster above his TV or whatever. And he dozes off. And when he like his eyes open back up again, she's no longer in the poster, but he feels something and he's on a waterbed and he takes the sheets off and she's underneath the, like she's inside the waterbed, um, naked, of course. Cause this we are talking an 80s horror movie and she swims away and then you kind of like see from inside the waterbed like joey's reaction all of a sudden he gets this panicked look and up comes freddie up out of the waterbed pulls him in and is just you know killing him and once again gets the hit with a great one-liner of uh how's this for a wet dream um (laughs) see it still gets me um leading to you know kind of like him coming after Kristen because, you know, he needs the last of the Elm Street kids kind of thing. Um, But when he finally does get Kristen, it's only because like her mom drugged her to put her to sleep. And in her panic of being attacked by Freddie, basically she pulls Alice into her dream. And this is where it kind of takes its own life because it's kind of like, Alice is, I guess, like has the ability in her dreams to like absorb other people's abilities, so to speak. So like she starts like as people die in the movie, she starts like basically absorbing their essence kind of and like taking on their ability. So like her they have a friend that's like a really, you know, techie kind of character. And after she dies of what appears to be an asthma attack to anybody who doesn't know any better. You know, she gets her abilities to like work with gadgets and there's a chick that's afraid of bugs. Who's kind of a bodybuilder who also, you know, little side note goes on to be on a show with Heather Langenkamp 
called Just the Ten of Us. And also the youngest daughter in Just the Ten of Us was in like a brief part of Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2. But the thing that's really funny about that whole aspect, and I'll get back to Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4 in a second, is the fact that the little brother on this show, Just the Ten of Us, was like massively uh, obsessed with Freddy Krueger in the Nightmare on Elm Street series. And what, three out of the five daughters in this family are all part of Nightmare on Elm Street series? Um, Yeah, there's... Yeah, I want to say five. Five daughters in that show. But anyways, um, but yeah, so it's like she anyways, Alice starts like basically being able to uh like I said, ad, like adopt like character abilities and whatnot, kind of. So she's almost like um uh, oh god, I can't even think of the name of the character in comics, but you know, like uh anyways, he, he comes like she kind of becomes like the Peter from the uh, the Heroes TV show where she can just take on their abilities, but she only can do so after they die and like their essence gets given to her, so to speak. So like throughout the movie, she gets the ability to suddenly start being a martial arts expert and she gets the ability to pull other people into her dreams from Kristen and, you know, that kind of stuff. Um... Once again, got some icon, got some real fun kills in there, but I think the real standout to this one of like what really sucks is how much like they how much uh, budget cutting they did, and how it really affected the movie. Because like when it came time for Alice's brother to like his death scene, it was supposed to be like this really really intricate sequence, um, because Rick was like really into martial arts and he was very into the Asian culture or whatever. So it was supposed to be like this big, like showdown in a very Asian inspired fight. But then they cut the budget so much that it ended up being like, he walks into this room with that is like very lightly decorated with like throw pillows and some like curtains to make it look almost almost Asian inspired. Um, and then he has a fight with an invisible Freddy which is really just, um, they, they say in the, the document, the, in uh, Never Sleep Again, like basically just John Wayne punches. He really doesn't use any like actual martial arts in this fight sequence. And then the glove just like, like at one point in time he, like, he kicks the invisible Freddy and the glove goes flying. And eventually the glove just like picks itself up and flies at him and stabs him in the stomach. End of story. And it's like, it's this really kind of, boring thing which really could have been so much better if only people wouldn't have kept cutting budget on this movie um but yeah but anyways so you get a but you get a really cool kind of sequence at the end where it's like repeating timeline kind of thing because uh like alice and dan at this point in time i think are the only ones that are actually still alive and they're going to try to save the the friend that's like really like a bodybuilder kind of type girl because they put together that she's in trouble. Um, but they keep like every time they do get to a certain point, like they'll meet up, they'll get in the truck, they'll drive away. And next thing you know, Alice is coming out of this restaurant again. And 
they finally realize that, like, wait a second, they're in, like, a dream loop or something like that. And then Freddy shows up in front of them. They try to run him down in this truck that they're in, but it ends up being a tree. Dan is going to the hospital. They're about to, like, severely sedate him for surgery. And so Alice goes home and, like, basically gears up for this battle. So she gets on this, like, leather jacket. She gets, like, all tough looking. And it it kind of leads to a really cool sequence where, you know, like, they sedate Dan. He goes into the dream. She shows up to save him kind of thing. And then she ends up fighting Freddy by herself. But where it falls apart a little bit, and by a little bit I mean probably a lot of it, is, like, by showing him his reflection, like, all the souls that he's absorbed over the years or whatever can like now revolt against him. So it's like, I mean, it leads to a really cool sequence where like all these hands and bodies are kind of like, like miniature ones are like poking out of him and like grabbing a hold of stuff and like ripping him apart. Essentially it's kind of a cool thing. And it's really cool to see how they did this sequence in the long run. Um, but it it's a little hokey, like I said, you know, the whole idea of just like showing him his reflection allows these souls to fight back against him. Um, doesn't make a hundred percent sense, but still kind of cool. Like once again, I think it's kind of I can suspend the disbelief enough to uh, watch it and, and enjoy it a lot. Um, and now we're gonna get into. The the ones that don't really stand out the greatest to me, which is um, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 5, The Dream Child, which I think was a... Ri- no, that wasn't the one that was supposed to be written by uh, Peter Jackson originally. I think that was six. Um, anyways, directed uh, from 1989, directed by Stephen Hopkins. Um Okay, uh, Lisa Wilcox comes back playing uh, Alice, and Danny Hassel, that's the name of the actor that plays Dan, reprises Dan. So it's like kind of like they're now like free of the Freddy Krueger thing, but you know, they're moved on, they've got a new group of friends. Um, and then you know, she gets pregnant. And, like, I think she finds out she's pregnant just after Dan dies. Um, I don't even remember how Freddy gets... Oh, that's right. This is the one that... Um, in this one, it really kind of reveals, like, what... How Freddy was created, literally. Because it's like you find out that, like, in the beginning of the movie, Alice has a dream where she's a nun who accidentally gets locked in with, like, all these maniacs in this, like large room and it's revealed that basically there was a a a, a nun that was raped repeatedly because she was hidden away by these these maniacs and raped you know repeatedly and one of these guys is is freddie's father you know you never re- they never really say exactly who but there is a, a robert england you know robert england does play a character in that sequence so they heavily hint that, okay, this is him, but you know, nothing really is made of that other than, you know, she was the she was raped and Freddie is the bastard son of a hundred maniacs or whatever. Um 
And then Freddy is like reborn essentially in this dream. Like she sees Freddy get reborn. Like she sees the 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 pre the nun the nun give birth, but it's like this hideously shaped kid, baby that then runs away and grows up in like a matter of moments to become Freddy with. But then like when he puts the glove on, he's like when you first see him in all his glory, he's got like this one really like elongated arm, which is kind of creepy. Um, kind of almost reminds me of the arm of uh, Benny from Total Recall, where he like you know, he takes off the fake hand. And he's got like the really weird looking arm. Um, but anyways, and Freddy goes to work on attacking all of uh, all of her friends. Um, first, getting Dan finally, which to me I think it's probably like the standout death of the movie is Dan, where you know he's he's going to try to get to Alice doesn't know he's asleep. Um, because Alice like essentially brought him into the dream on accident, even though she's awake. Um, and he gets on a motorcycle and the motorcycle like basically starts to like, like kind of like, form into him so he becomes like kind of like one with the motorcycle and then it crashes and she gets there just in time to see you know like basically the wreckage of dan and his actual truck he was in a truck actually the entire time but um and the last thing she sees is like dan kind of lift his head up and say something like you know want to make a baby or something like that and yeah it it's it's not a not a real winner um, like I said, it has some, like, special effects-wise, has some really cool moments. I like the concept of the idea of it, you know, like, the fact that, like, because she's pregnant and a baby spends its life, like, I think it's, I think they say, like, 90% of a baby's life while it's in the womb is dreams. Um, The baby is basically, Freddie has gotten to the baby to an extent to allow, to get it to use her ability to pull people into the dream so he can get his strength back kind of thing. So it's got a cool concept, but once again, it gets severely neutered by, um, budget cuts to the filming. Um, it really gets like hampered. And it's like to the point that like they did a whole character's death. The character didn't even know he was dying. Um, like he just came to set one day and they're like, Oh no, we killed you last night, essentially in this thing. Um, and that's kind of a shame because I mean, you you do get some, like some interesting things like, you know, the one guy is a comic book artist. So he becomes like this, he becomes his comic book character in his dream briefly and fights Freddie. And then Freddie becomes, super freddy which is kind of funny um but then he just becomes like this paper doll kind of like the the main character becomes like a paper or the the guy that's not that dies becomes like a paper doll character that gets slashed by freddy and like all the color starts running out of his body i mean it's it's really kind of hokey and probably the smallest fatality amount in the movie franchise too because i want to say there's only like three deaths because there's dan there's the comic book guy and then there's uh 
Greta, I believe is her name. And she's like a model and her mom is really forcing upon her to keep her weight down and all this kind of stuff. And she had, she's like, she has like, she gets pulled into a dream while she's at this really boring dinner with her mom and her mom's friends or whatever. And Freddie like starts feeding her. It, I think in the original version, it was like Freddie was supposed to be feeding her, her own guts essentially. But I want to say they took that aspect of it out of it. I could be wrong. Um, it's been a while since I've watched part five. Um, but yeah, and it, it I mean, it, it kind of comes down to, you know, though, like basically it's a fight within Alice herself to like basically save her baby um, from Freddie getting a hold of it. And uh, like basically she ends up talking the baby in like the this like dream version of her baby into fighting back against Freddie because Freddie was like feeding him the souls or I don't know. It's like I said, it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for, even though it is kind of a fun movie. Um, and then like the, but the, the child ends up fighting back and killing Freddie and it ends with the nun like fighting Freddie back into her stomach kind of, um, and then a door closes, like almost like if he's locked away again for a little bit. It, yeah. But then, you know, you, you smash cut to, you know, like however long and, you know, forward. And, you know, you've got Alice in the park with her baby, uh, the one other friend that survives and her father. Um, and, you know, they're like just kind of chilling and having you know having a conversation then it pulls back and in this park you see the little girls once again the little girls in white dresses doing their uh, jump rope stuff uh and yeah that ends it and it's like it it's a very disjointed movie and i'd really like to see what would have come out of that movie had it not been so cut down with like budget cuts and you know, MPAA sensors and whatnot. Um, Cause I really think the idea of that movie is good. It's just the execution kind of fell apart. Um, okay. And now we get to the full on Looney Tunes. That is Freddy's dead. The final nightmare uh, it was directed by Rachel Talele, which I believe is she's part of, um, she was a part of like a lot of the making of the earlier ones. And they finally gave her the, sh- uh, the, the shot at directing. Um, yeah, there's not a whole lot of names in this, this movie. Um, I think the biggest name is the man, the myth, Yafet Koto from, uh, the alien movie, the original alien movie plays a small part in it. I, I just, it's been a while since I've watched one. You think I would have watched these movies again just before doing this, but I'm doing this out of memory. It's way more fun. Um, there's a group of kind of like teenage troublemakers and they go on a road trip to, I think it's a, well, it, it opens with like this, this character that's only ever known as John Doe. Um, running from Freddy and he has a whole uh, like Wizard of Oz kind of dream where he's in a house and the house gets taken up in the air and he sees Freddy doing the whole I'll get you by pretty and your little dog too kind of thing. But it 
all leads to like Freddy basically forcing this guy outside of like a certain place because like Freddy, I'm guessing it's like Freddy can't leave this certain, you know, can't get more children until they come back to this area. So you got the whole Jane Doe or John Doe thing, but then there's also a reference to the fact that Freddy had a kid before he was killed. So like maybe they, a lot of people think that maybe this kid was Freddy's son or whatever. Um, but that's not really the case. I've always read it as wondered, I guess maybe is a better way of saying it, if this character wasn't supposed to be like Alice's son, full grown now, but it's never really answered. He never gets a name other than John Doe. He dies midway through the movie and his death is like basically the, 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 the point that allows Freddy to get to new kids. Um, well, I take that back. You got, you do have Breck and Meyer in this movie. Um, before he was really known. Um, and he plays like a stoner character. You have Carlos, who's this Hispanic kid that wears a hearing aid because his mom was like really messed up and like would clean his ears out with like violently clean his ears out apparently with like Q-tips or whatever. And you just get like, it's just, but this movie just becomes full on like Looney Like, I mean, even the way the John Doe character dies is very Looney Tunes-esque. Like, he he gets thrown out of a plane kind of a thing, and he's flying, he pops the parachute, but Freddy cuts the things, and then he falls, and you see Freddy, like, you know, like, very Bugs Bunny or Roadrunner-ish. Like, he pulls, pushes a bed of spikes out underneath the kid, so the kid falls on the spikes, which does lead to a pretty cool, like, um, special effects moment, like, where the kid lands on the spikes, you, like, you see him... In real life, and all of a sudden, he's got, like, these six or eight holes from, like, where the spikes penetrated his body kind of thing. But it's... It's fun, but it is not a great movie. Um, I really think this is where Freddy kind of is broken as a character. He becomes a little too much to the camp side of it. Um, I still watch it. I mean, you have like, you know, the, the power, the infamous power glove thing where, you know, he, when he kills Breckenmeyer, uh, Breckenmeyer's like super stoned and gets like pulled into a video game where his dad is like chasing him. But then you find out it's like Freddie controlling the dad and some of the other people go into the dream to, uh, stop like unplug the control and they unplug the controller to stop him from controlling the, the father in the video game and killing Breckenmeyer but as Breckenmeyer's going through this thing in the in the dream, like he's doing this very stupid looking like pogoing around in real life and whatnot. It's it's out there. The other thing that's cool about the Breckenmeyer acid trip dream though is Johnny Depp comes back for a brief cameo appearance doing the this is your brain and this is your brain on drugs with the egg thing. You know, he cracks the egg, this is your brain on drugs, and then suddenly he gets hit with a pan. And Freddy's on the screen. And it's it's really kind of a fun little nod. Um, but it's like Johnny Depp's not even credited as being in the movie. So unless you know to look for it, you know, it's probably fairly easily missed to some people. Um, but then it but it all leads to you find out like this lady that worked at this center for the troubled teens or whatever is actually Freddy's daughter, and she's the only one that can kill him. Um and when the movie originally came out, it came, like when you went and saw it in theaters, it had 3D glasses. So like 
when she puts on the 3D glasses or the special dream vision glasses or whatever, you put the glasses on, I guess, and from then on the movie was in 3D. I've never seen it in 3D. I don't feel like I need to see it in 3D. But it, you know, it's it's problematic, but it's fun. Um, and little side note, it also really ties into uh, Jason Goes to Hell, The Final Friday, came out around the same point in time. And both of them had the same story plot of, oh, the only thing that can kill this, you know, X character is somebody of their own blood. So, like, Freddy has to die at the hands of his daughter. And I want to say with Jason, it was like a sister or a a niece or something like that that kills him. Both of them did that ridiculous thing. And I I really wish they wouldn't have gone there. But, you know, yeah, so you have what was supposed to be the death of Freddy. And by all rights was the death of, of Freddy as that, you know, as that specific incarnation, so to speak. Um because then we go to, I always go back and forth one, whether this is the second or the third best in the Nightmare franchise. Because like this one and three can really go back and forth to me. And that is Wes Craven's new Nightmare. It's the return of Wes Craven to the series. Um, it does some really cool things. It's like really, in many ways, it's a prototype for Scream. Because it's very... Uh, What's the word for um, uh, self-referential? Because the whole idea of the movie is Heather Langkamp plays Heather Langenkamp. You know, you see Robert England playing himself. Wes Craven's in the movie is himself. John Saxon comes back playing himself. But it's basically you like in this movie, you have Heather Langkamp's getting like bothered by a, a stalker. And she keeps having weird dreams, but it's not really, you know, anything, you know, she, she can't really put a thing, but then she has a son who's suddenly having like a lot of really weird, like sleep issues. Um, and it basically comes down to, you find out that like Wes Craven is writing a new, a new, uh, nightmare movie, you know, to, to bring Freddie back one more time. And then as the movie goes, you find out this whole thing is like, you know, Freddie was, like basically like this supernatural being that as long as he's within a story, he's, he's not truly dangerous. So like all the movies that West, all the nightmare on Elm street movies that were created were basically keeping Freddie locked away. But now that there's not been a movie or any stories, he's like this fairy tale creature that's allowed to come, come to the real world, so to speak. Um, once again, sounds really stupid, but this movie is the first Nightmare on Elm Street movie to be legitimately creepy, if not full-out scary, in a long time. Um, Well, since the first one, let's face it. Um, It does do a little bit of homages. Like, you do see... There is a a take on the scene uh, where there's a scene where the the babysitter of her her son is getting dragged up a, a... you know, the walls and across the ceiling as she's getting murdered by Freddy. But Freddy gets a redesign... Um, the gloves are now like built. The glove is now like built into his hand. It's not an actual glove. It's like his hand actually has like these knives embedded into it. Um, yeah, and it, it it has some very Hansel and Gretel things in it. Like you know, in 
at a point in time, you know, Heather Langkamp is reading to her son, Hansel and Gretel, and that kind of sets the pace for the fact that this is going to take that kind of as a as a baseline kind of in some ways. Um, but yeah, no, this, this movie does some really, really great things. Um, and I really feel that I want to say, I, you'd think I would have written it down. Maybe I did write it down. Hold on. No, I didn't. Um, Miko Hughes, I believe is the name of the kid in this one. And Miko Hughes puts in a hell of a performance. Um, of course, he's most infamously known as the boys have a penis, girls have a vagina child in Kindergarten Cop. But um, like I said, in this one, he plays her, her Heather Langkamp's son. But then, like, at a certain point in time, like, fantasy and reality start kind of blurring because there's, like, a point where John Saxon shows up at her house um, after her son's been abducted, essentially, by Freddy. And says, you know, like, basically she she calls him John. He's like, you know, why are you calling me John? You, you know you're supposed to call me dad kind of thing. So it's like it starts blurring the lines between, you know, the the reality of this movie and the reality of the mo- the original movie Nightmare on Elm Street. You know, like where she, she is she willing to play Nancy one last time kind of thing. Um Man, yeah, and and the I think the special effects do some real wonders in this one too, because it it really gets it's it's a great movie to me. I, I really like this one. It's probably like I said, probably the the only other one that scares me other than the original. And I go back and forth on whether this or number three is the best. Probably number three is probably my number two is probably the the second best to me, just because it it has such a great um, such a payoff from the first one. But this one definitely stands up there to me. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's where I'm gonna stop talking about. It. I'm not gonna talk about uh, Freddy versus Jason. <sighs> that was a movie that should have come out a long time before it did, and had it, it might have been a better movie. And I already talked about my thoughts on an earlier episode about uh, the Nightmare on Elm Street remake with Jackie Earl Haley. Uh, I really feel like, you know, to sum it up real quick though, I think Jackie Earl Haley was a good Freddy. He was just in a shitty movie. You put him with a better director. I really think that could have been something because I think he does some interesting things that I didn't mind the redesign of Freddy. I just think that there were some big shoes to fill and platinum dunes were not the people to help fill those shoes properly. Um, so yeah, that's me talking about Nightmare on Elm Street series. Um, so yeah, if you have any thoughts, comments, questions, um, you can reach me at standstrongcast at gmail.com. Um, so I guess I'll just say my usual thank you for listening and thank you to everybody who supports me and just know that even if I don't know you and you're out here out there listening to this, Thank you, because this this is my therapy. Um, so yeah, with that, I will say, see you in two weeks. Bye-bye. <laughs>